today on Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet, Darkness on the Edge of Town, the album. Hey everybody, you're listening to season two of Bruce Springsteen Sings the Alphabet. We're talking about all the albums, not in alphabetical order. We're going by year this go around, and we're talking about each and <laughs> and we're talking about each and every Bruce Springsteen album. Every um, one of them. And you, and you just heard my wonderful co-host and very excited co-host, absolutely Rob excited Carmack. co-host, coast host and coast to coast, <laughs> co-host of the most from coast to coast in the middle of Texas. That's right. Anyway, not to throw off your rhythm. You're doing just fine. No, man. You're good. Why don't as we record this podcast, why don't why don't I do what Bruce Springsteen did to Max Weinberg the entire time they were recording this album and just while you're talking every once in a while I'll just yell stick stick <laughs> just psychologically <laughs> tormenting his band members. Anyway, you were yeah. saying, go back to your intro. Your name is JB Clark. I'm I'm JB Clark and I'm joined as always by Rob Carmack. Hello. Hey. Hey. I, I'm J.B. Clark. I'm joined as always by Rob Carmack. He sounds better every time. <laughs> That's the intro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were saying hello like, hello, you're here. I thought you were saying hello like we, we were having technical difficulties earlier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. We're, what's up? You want to I thought you were just trying different down? takes. Like, I'll, no. I'll try that one again with, with, a, with more confidence. I'll, I'll do it with like an like a audible strut. I'm J.B. Clark. I don't know what's going <laughs> on tonight. J.B. Anyway. Yeah, feeling a little loopy. Yeah, uh, man. I mean, hey, you so know what? Well, I figured let's, let's just do this one really loose. <laughs> yeah. Let's take the uh, tightest, <laughs> most precise record Bruce Springsteen's ever recorded, and let's, uh, let's, let's talk about it real loose. I think I like it. I like the juxtaposition of that. We, we did yeah. While the Innocent was our, was our tightest episode so far, and we did that. So right. the loosest album was very tight, so now we'll do the... Um, arguably, although you, you would argue, and we'll get into this, you could argue that Born to Run was tighter than Darkness on the Edge of Town in terms of all the things that went into the recording and everything like that. Anyway, we will get to that. But first, JB, we, we got to set this thing up. We got to provide some context. If nothing else, we're here to provide context. That's right. So we're talking Bruce Springsteen's fourth album, Darkness on the Edge of Town, as you mentioned before. This album uh, w- this album was released June 2nd, 1978 from Columbia Records, which is three years after Bruce's previous album, Born to Run, which is a long time. We'll talk about why that happened in just a second. So 1978, big year for albums. The 70s, the, the, I mean, listen, there were, some, there were some albums that came out in the 1970s. So in 1978, uh, some of the other noteworthy albums that came out that year were as follows, JB. Some Girls by the Rolling Stones. This Year's Model by Elvis Costello, Parallel Lines by Blondie, More Songs About Buildings and Food by The Talking Heads, Saturday Night, the, the soundtrack for the movie Saturday Night Fever by the Bee Gees, which, by the way, JB, that's the top-selling album from 1978. The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. You know what the second-highest-selling album from that year was? What? The soundtrack to the movie Grease. So the two highest-selling albums from that year were soundtracks to John Travolta movies. We've come a long way, my friend. Yeah. So we have those uh, were pretty those were pretty great soundtracks, though. <laughs> I mean, obviously iconic soundtracks, well regarded. Um, so then yeah. uh, a couple more. You've got Van Halen's self-titled album, which, by the way, Rolling Stone magazine names that the best the best album of 1978. Not Darkness on the Age of Town, Van Halen. 
So uh, then you've got. I was talking about this with my dad earlier. Van Halen is like, they're good, but they're not like important. You know? I mean, Eddie Van Halen is important. And David Lee Roth is important. But I don't know if Van Halen is important. Not like. Not like poetically important, you know. Well, I, yes, I mean, ask any guitar player: Is Eddie Van Halen important? You know what I mean? And they'll be like, "Well, yeah." yeah I mean, sh- yeah, for sure. But like, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, and that's a band that's probably not quite as great as some of its parts, you know. Anyway, not a Van Halen podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but then uh, you've got "Give Them Enough Rope" by The Clash, Fifty Second Street" by Billy Joel. This, the next one, by the way, is possibly my favorite album title ever. And the album title is Q, Are We Not Men? A, We Are Devo by Devo. <laughs> oh, leave it to Devo, man. Leave it to Devo. Then you got Who Are You by The Who. I don't know. I'm probably going to mispronounce this one, but Outlandos de Amor by The Police. Blue Valentine by Tom Waits. Excitable Boy by Warren Zevon, a personal favorite of mine. Heaven Tonight by Cheap Trick. The Cars self titled album, The Cars. Don't Look Back by Your your Guys, Boston, Stardust by Willie Nelson, and Here, My Dear by Marvin Gaye. Those are the big albums from that year. That's a pretty big year. It's a pretty big year. And it was then, an incredible decade, too. In the, in the midst of that, you have Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town, which Rolling Stone magazine names as their fifth favorite album of the year, not their first. Again, that was Van Halen. So uh, that's, the, that's the world out of which Darkness on the Edge of Town was born. Any, any thoughts on any of those albums before we continue moving? No, I mean those are just those are great albums, I, and we're going to talk more albums on the bonus episode today. We're talk top albums from not just that year but the decade. Yeah, top five albums from nineteen from the nineteen seventies. Yeah, um, excluding Bruce Springsteen albums. I realized uh, as I was making my list for that uh, as a preview. I was as I was making my list, I realized like four of my top five albums from nineteen from the nineteen seventies are Bruce Springsteen albums. Uh, right. So gonna have to set all those aside. <laughs> so really, what you're hearing is most my top nine albums from from the 1970s. Right. <laughs> anyway, so the Darkness on the Edge of Town. The producers, the credited producers on this album are Bruce Springsteen and John Landau, with uncredited assistance from Stephen Van Zandt. Also, Jimmy Iovine is back in the booth as the engineer. And okay, so here's here's the backstory, JB. Here's a little backstory on where this album comes from. So in 1975, as we mentioned in last week's episode, Born to Run is released and absolutely changes Bruce Springsteen's life. Now he has to go back into the studio and make the next record, which is all by itself pretty daunting. But what happens next is something that nobody expects because they're riding high off the success. And the question on everybody's lips is, what is Bruce Springsteen going to do next? He has changed rock and roll with this Born to Run album. He's gone on tour. He's just completely subverted and overcome all expectations. Now it's time to go back in, in the studio because that's what you do. You you make a record, you go on tour, you go back in the studio and make another record. But instead of it being one year, it takes three years. And here's why. Because in January of 1976, Bruce and his longtime manager at that point, Mike, I say longtime, like four years at this point, his manager, Mike Appel, right. had a major split. And... As part of their original agreement, Bruce and Mike Appel had signed a contract in which Bruce signed over half of all of his publishing rights to Mike. So in the shadow of their split, Mike files a lawsuit and makes it absolutely impossible for Bruce Springsteen to go back into the studio to record the next album without giving Mike a certain amount of power. Or like Basically, the lawsuit says Bruce cannot go into the studio with, unless I approve who like the producer and the engineer. But see, they've gone their separate ways. They're, they're, there's a rift. So if there's anything we've learned so far about Bruce Springsteen, it's that he's not super interested in handing control over his art to somebody else. 
So so Mike says, yeah. you can't go into the studio without me. We have this contract. So Bruce says, okay, then we're not going back into the studio. You can't have that. So it, it basically becomes like a standoff until the lawsuit concludes. So the injunction says that Bruce is legally barred from recording um, without Mike's approval. Because the contract had given Mike a certain amount of power over decision making regarding how Bruce, how and when Bruce could record, so Bruce says, uh, if, if you watch the the documentary, The Promise, that uh, kind of outlines all this, Bruce says that the entire battle was rooted in the question of who would have control over his work, and was absolutely unwilling to surrender a single shred of that control. And in The Promise, if you have you watched this documentary, by the way, JB. I've seen part of it, yeah. It's it's t- absolutely worth. It. I, I rewatched it today in preparation for this. So in in the promise. So I don't know if you've seen this part, JB, but in the promise, they interview Mike Appel, and Mike has the audacity to say this. The, this is a quote. He says, "It's a good thing Bruce signed half his publishing rights over to me, because if he hadn't, he might have signed them over to somebody else, and then he never would have gotten them back." <laughs> like, take a minute and think about that statement. Like, it's a good thing he signed them over to me, because if he hadn't signed them over to me, I might not have sued him, and then I wouldn't have lost the lawsuit three years later, and then Bruce never would have gotten the rights to his music back. To me, that sounds like somebody saying, somebody punching you in the face, and then saying, you know, it's a good thing I did that, because now you know how to take a punch. Because if somebody else had punched you in the face, they might have done it differently. So, you're welcome. (laughs) I, like I, I actually had to pause my my Apple TV oh, and like yeah. take a minute when after I heard him say that like, really like you like it's a good thing Bruce, like it's a good thing I completely sabotaged Bruce's career for almost three full years because if I hadn't done that somebody else might have done it instead of me. So <laughs> that's um, wild, man. Unbelievable. That's absolutely insane. Yeah. In that, so th- this is a fascinating, and this is why the the promise is such an interesting movie. But if somebody ever makes it like a like a scripted movie about Bruce Springsteen, like they've done recently with like Queen and Elton John, I I I think, in my opinion, as a as a seasoned screenwriter and movie producer that I am, um, right? You know, in my in my own mind, if somebody yes. ever makes a movie about Bruce Springsteen. I, I think they should not do the like cradle to grave or cradle to however old thing that they've done with these previous rock bios. I think they should make a movie that's all about the period of time from 1975 to 1978. I think this is a fascinating period of time that really does a lot to shape who Bruce Springsteen is as an artist. Oh, I think I think that like the sort of the denouement is is this record. Like that's the end is like this record coming out and them hearing it like on the radio. That, well, and that's sort of the thing. To, and the, this this album has to do a lot of things. And it, I mean, not not the least the least of which being that it's the follow up to Born to Run, but also it's the it's the question of does Bruce Springsteen still have it, and who is Bruce Springsteen as a songwriter now that he's been through this massive like lawsuit and almost career ending schism with his manager. So, I mean, well, and is his control better than his manager's control? Like who? Who was responsible for the goods? Well, and I'm sure was that was yeah, and I'm I'm sure that was a major thing that, and, and I mean, in fact, one of the things that he says in the documentary is, you know, you have all these people sort of like musing over like whatever happened to Bruce Springsteen, and because because it's been three years, like you disappear, you're you vanish from the scene if if you haven't made an album in three years, and so right. it's like whatever happened to this guy, and does he have it in him to make another album, and is 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 it still there, or was he just like the guy who made Born to Red and. He says, and for all I know, like at the time, for all I know, they're right. You know, right? 
so he's going through a lot of self-doubt, which is sort of, at this point, like Bruce's bread and but like the born to run period shows like Bruce has a bottomless capacity for self doubt. So this, this whole thing really like throws him into, into that spiral. And even though he has a lot of self doubt, he's absolutely unwilling to let somebody else take control over what he's trying to do. Well, yeah, if he, his whole thing is like, if I'm going to burn up, it's going to be my fault. That's right. I'm like, if, if I'm going to have to take the fall, if this whole thing goes bad, then I'm going to be the one who's responsible for it. If, if, if it goes well. So I can't, I cannot give, a an absolute I absolutely cannot give a single inch of ground in this regard. Yeah. So um Bruce, according to Jimmy Iveen, Bruce wrote about 70 songs for consideration for this album. He recorded 52, and as we all know, he ultimately chose 10, which is pretty incredible because and Iveen points out like when we when we started recording Born to Run, Bruce had nine songs. And we we recorded nine songs and Bruce chose eight. So then we start recording yeah. this one and Bruce is like, I've got 70. And so they recorded 52 and ultimately chose 10. And little Steven would go, like, here's what you do. Here's, like, the general conventional wisdom is you write a bunch of songs, you pick your 10 to 12 best songs that you've written, and you put those on the album, and that's the album. And little Steven is like, Bruce would never do that again because that's what we did with Born to Run. And now what Bruce is trying to do is something else. And he will never go back to, I'll just put the 10 best songs or eight best songs on the record. And, and Iveen's like, it's like he had all this creative energy pent up from the three years and it's just like he exploded. Like we came into the, the studio and he's, he like could not stop like bringing in new songs. I don't understand how you can like have 70 iterations of any, um, like I don't have 70 ideas. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I don't have 70, not song ideas. I don't have 70 ideas. No, same. Like if you have, if you if you locked me in a room for a week, ideas. People are always like, "You have too many ideas," and I'm like, "I've got like, I got like 40. <laughs> well, and some of them are dip various iterations on a similar idea. And he, and Bruce, Bruce, uh, call, like refers to the songs as if like they're all like different cars that he's trying to assemble. And so it, it's like I'm working on this car, and I realize like, oh, this car needs a new transmission, so I'll go to the over to this other one, pull out the transmission, and put the that. And so, and yeah. we, we we saw this as we looked through each song. Like Candy's room looks a lot like Candy's boy. Factory looks a lot like Come Out Tonight, uh, or Come On, Let's Go Tonight. And you know, and so he he does sort of like assembled like songs in various ways to sort of see what works. But even even so, like seven, seventy songs is a lot of songs. So it's. And also the personnel on this one is pretty lean. Like this is the first time he'll record an album and just like use his own guys and no, bring in absolutely no outside musicians. So yeah, which like is pretty cool. It is all E Street Band personnel. It's Roy Bitten, Clarence Clemens, Danny, Danny Federici, Gary Talent, Steve Van Zant, and Max Weinberg. And that those are all the musicians credited in, on this album. They they brought in their guys and nobody else. So the album comes out. It reaches number five on the U.S. Billboard Pop Charts. It remains on the charts for seventy or ninety seven weeks, which is two years almost mm. and it was certified triple platinum which means it sold three over three million copies but in spite of that it had no number one singles or even like anywhere close like the the highest charting single was prove it all night and it it peaked at 33 so in spite of the fact that it doesn't really have any like strong performing singles it it remains as an album it remains on the charts for 97 weeks and goes triple platinum Rolling Stone magazine gives it five stars. They uh, rave. Dave Marsh writes a review for Rolling Stone and raves about it. Later, they named this album, like I said, the fifth best album of 1978. NME magazine in the UK names it the best album of 1978. That, that's pretty much all the like the nuts and bolts of the whole thing. Uh, do you have anything to add? Did I leave anything out? Was I too thorough? 
no, I, I mean, I, I would like to add you, you two things. You mentioned that the uh, the E Street Band, this is the first time it was just them. And it's so cool to hear Bruce bring in like tons of uh, other musicians. You know, you hear Tom Morello come on. You're like, oh, wow, this is great. Or, you know, whoever uh, doing vocals or it, it's just, you know, bringing in these, someone you never heard of to, to, to really lead or do, you know, be in charge of harmonies or, or, or strings or something. And, and then you're like, oh, I'm a new, now I'm a fan of this person. And then that's really cool. But um, the E Street Band is like an institution. And the reason they're an institution, I mean, they were always, you know, people loved them, but they were an institution because of, like this record. <laughs> and and this is where they like, this is, it's, oh, wow. Okay, so this band is all you really need. Everything else is just showing off how many cool friends you have. Yeah. Well, and I think there must have been a foxhole mentality at this point because yeah. they – you know, they they made Born to Run, which all by like ma- making that album, as we talked about last week, all like by itself was sort of a a crucible of sorts. Like they 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 like they they saw that as like we all went through this thing together, and then and so they go out on tour on that. The thing the lawsuit happens. They can't go into the studio. Bruce is millions of dollars in debt at this point because of all the expenses that went into the tour, and like all, all the like try and trying to keep the band like paid and fed in the midst of not being able to record. And so they are, as a band, they're basically like, we have to keep touring or we're all going to starve to death. So they have to, they, yeah. so, so they're touring, not out of the joy of touring or even to promote an album. They're, they're touring. In fact, what was it? What, I, I think you mentioned a while back, what, what they called uh, informally, they called the tour either like feed the band or like pay the lawyers or like some, some, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, feed the band too, I think. Yeah, and be, yeah, because because the the legal fees are mounting, and Bruce has to Bruce is continuing to try and like settle this lawsuit. Meanwhile, they have to like keep their jobs. And and Max Weinberg in the documentary talks about how when they're not on tour at this point, they're constantly like going over to Bruce's house and rehearsing every single day. So they're either playing shows Dang. or rehearsing every day. This is their job. They are treating this like a, like a nine to five job at this point. Yeah. And, and that's, and it's just these guys. It's just, it's Bruce and the E street band and nobody else on that, on that journey, like struggling and trying to survive. And they all stayed with him. Like not a one of them leaves the band in the midst of that. And not a one of them. I mean, they, they, they take side jobs as like studio performers for a little while. Yeah. Just, and all of them did that. But otherwise, it's just them, and they're all like spending every single day together, either recording or touring, or not recording, or either rehearsing or touring. And I mean, you know, you've I mean, you've talked a lot about being in a band and how like that's there, there's an intimacy that comes along with that. So I mean, imagine going through right. all these things with the same group of guys for three years, and all of them, in spite of everything, all of them stay with you because they believe in you and they care about you. Yeah, and like you you, you see all of that, and then all of a sudden the lawsuit is settled. And they're told all of a sudden they're told you can go into the studio and you can make an album again. And Bruce is like, these are the only guys I want to work with. You know what I mean? Like, like I, yeah. I can't imagine bringing somebody else in after what, after we went through the things that we went through, you know? Well, and just like the pinup creative energy they all had together, which had to have been pretty... hence 70 songs. <laughs> yeah. I guess it had to have been pretty wild. <laughs> I can't, I cannot even imagine, but I mean, that's why yeah. those guys are bonded for life. You know, they are. Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a I, there's a guy that uh, I, almost all of my friends have played in a band for. <laughs> all of my friends like from all over the country. 
Yeah. Because this because this guy, anytime he's in town, like everyone has some crazy story or some crazy series of two words or something. And anytime this guy, like if this guy came to town right now, I would be like, hey, we gotta. Um, if he if he was like, hey, my bass player's sick and we're almost to the blue canoe. I would be like, "Hey, uh, Rob, I got, I gotta go. Uh, yeah. Something just came. Up. It's kind of an emergency." And you'd be like, "Okay." <laughs> and you text me later, like, "Later, like, is April okay?" And I'd be like, "Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I, should, right. I had to play a gig. <laughs> like, and all of us know all of his songs right now. It's like that's there. There's something about like being in um in it with someone who is who is like a charismatic creative, you know, and someone who's like who who is willing to be that organizer, you know, there's mm-hmm. something about that, that, that just, uh, really attracts creative people. And I, and I love that. And I think that's what this record's sort of all about. I think you're right. Well, and, it, and it's interesting too, because, and we'll talk more about this as we go into it, but the album thematically, the album is in a lot of ways about disconnection. And, and, and one of the things we saw as we looked through the, the tracks was the, the resounding sort of under like the theme is trying to live inside of the tension between hope and despair. Like you see that a lot, like the song Badlands is a really good encapsulation of that, but also oh, yeah. the, like how he explores that territory is by exploring the different ways that people find themselves disconnected from everybody else. And, and that's really interesting. And, and we'll talk more about this like in many weeks when we start talking about the, the promise box set, but that Bruce had like a bunch of the songs that Bruce wrote were love songs or like doo-woppy songs or, you know, songs that were lighthearted or about connection. And yeah. none of those songs ended up on the album. They all ended up being about disconnection and struggle. And like, how do you maintain your own personal identity in the midst of adversity? And when you're all by yourself with your, with your principles and like, man, that's, that's the kind of thing that you, that you start writing about when the person you thought was your best friend in the world breaks your heart and tries to take away the thing that makes you who you are, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah man. man. Yeah. That's, well, uh, I didn't mean to, to open up a real rabbit hole on that one, but I had one, the one other thing I wanted to say about your whole explanation of this time. Yeah. You said this, this went triple platinum, sold 3 million records. It yes. sold more than 3 million records. That means that 1%, like imagine like 1% of the U S population. Now I realize this is internationally, but that's 1% of the U S population. <laughs> yeah. Like one in three or not 1%. It's more than that. No, no, it's 1%. Yeah. Um, U.S. population is 300 million? Yeah. Okay. Well, then, yeah. That's like one in every 100 people has this record. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of records. It's a lot of records. Yeah. I guess, like, thinking about it that way, I'm so much less surprised that so many people, <laughs> when we started doing this, were like, hey, we're on board. <laughs> yeah. You because know? all they do is search Bruce Springsteen in the, in the iTunes search bar, and they're like, sounds good. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the fact that 300 million people have listened to this record, there's a lot of people who are interested in this, you know? Yeah. So, and most of them have not listened to this podcast, we should say. We, this podcast That's, has yeah, not gone I've, triple platinum. I'm just saying, like, while it seems like this community of uh, Springsteen fans, uh, podcast listeners, and, and recorders uh, and participators, it seems like a really big community but whenever you compare it to the overall number of people who have interacted with Bruce Springsteen enough to the point that they would buy the record yeah you know it's like oh we're just dropping the bucket <laughs> yeah there's a lot sure. of Springsteen fans the yeah i mean the the scope of Spr- Springsteen fandom is is broad we we have seen and and yeah i mean this this album is not where it started it started with Born to Run really i mean because Born to Run went triple or like six times platinum. So Born to Run sold double the number of copies that this one did. 
Um, Born to Run went double, triple platinum. Double, triple platinum. I don't know what, what you call it when, when it goes beyond. Like, once you're past, like, quattro. Yeah, like, once you're past four, like, I, I just have to just say the regular number. Just, it went six times platinum. And also, like, some of the, some of the deleted scenes or some of, like, the, the omitted tracks from this album, like, would have been big hits. Like, songs like Because the Night or Fire. Uh, and the reason, yeah. and in... And the explanation given for why they cut those are twofold. One is like again, Bruce was trying to make a song about or an album about disconnection, and those songs are about connection. But also right. the the second one is anytime it be and this is John Landau speaking, but he pretty much says like anytime it became apparent that we were gonna get a hit single, Bruce like automatically started like trying to find reasons to not include it because he didn't want to oh, wow. be defined by that song. He didn't want the album to be eclipsed by the song. So he's here, I mean, more than any other time in his whole career, which is funny because like the last album was like, you got to have a single or we're going to drop you from the label. And this one is yeah. like, oh, this is going to be, be a single. We can't use it, you know, because we don't we don't want this album to be defined by singles. You know, well, yeah, there's a number four on the pop charts do album and all the outtakes, you know, on the cutting room floor. This record is a is a top 10 record. Yeah. Well, I mean, because the night was fa- very famously given to Patti Smith through Jimmy Iovine by Bruce Springsteen. And that is to this day, Patti Smith's only number one song. Yeah, and it could have been like, and Bruce had it; it was his, and so he he was like, maybe Patty can use it, and she absolutely did. Um, but that 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 he took the song that was absolutely the most commercially viable song that he was considering putting on the album, and he was like, maybe Patty Smith wants it. Uh, Tells yeah, you, like, let's give it away. Yeah, I mean, he was just on a different wavelength, and um, we'll we'll talk more about that when we yeah. get to the promise. But but yeah, so it's, it is interesting. Like, so he, again, he's not interested in making a collection of singles; he's interested in making like a capital A album, you know? And I mean, you yeah. can make the argument that that just that mindset almost makes this a concept album, even though like technically it's not a concept album because it doesn't have like the, you know, the, the recurring like motifs and, and sounds and like characters or whatever that you find on like a Pink Floyd album or a, a who album. Right, but at yeah. the same time, it, it like it functions as a concept album because like Bruce is interested in doing something that's more than just a collection of songs. Anyway, there's a lot that there's a lot of talking, but we haven't even gotten to the the track by track. Did I, I I'm I'm did I, I didn't step on you, did I? Were, were you was there more that you were gonna say? No, dude, no, you just uh, I I didn't think what I was uh, my response was gonna resonate so much. So oh, it did. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. So do you want to talk about some of your favorites? Or how do we want to do this next? We've done this kind of a few different ways. Let's do let, let's do the track by track, but we can do it quickly. Um, we just sort of give okay. it for people who are listening who want a, a full discussion of the album. We let's do the guided tour, but we don't we don't have to just as a disclaimer to to everybody listening who maybe hasn't listened to every other episode of the podcast. We have talked about literally every song on this album already. Yeah, and we gave we, we rated every song on a scale of one to five. Every this is the only album in Bruce's entire catalog that got fives on every single song every so single song out of five we've made the point Spo- that this yeah, is a- listen to all of them yeah so i mean we've made the point that this is a perfect album before so if if you hear us talk about these songs and you're like whoa, whoa, whoa you you only spent like 30 seconds on something like man we, we already did like 30 minutes on it before so feel free to go back and yeah and it's all in the now. feed or i think once you get back a certain distance you have to go on to patreon to listen to those but yeah. just because squarespace doesn't have them but squarespace uh, anyway, all right. So yeah, let's let's do the let's do the track by track. So you drop the needle, side one, track one, Badlands. Yeah, 
second single from the album. This this song peaks at number 42 on the charts. And uh, we've talked before about how Bruce himself acknowledges that the opening riff here is a major key version of the minor key intro to the song Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by the Animals. He proudly, he proudly acknowledges that he steals from the animals regularly. Well, and you got to. You got to acknowledge. Yeah. And uh, interesting tidbit here. They almost left the saxophone solo off of this song, and it was added at the very last minute. Uh, because Bruce felt like, as they were listening to the full album, Bruce had this this uh, kind of feeling that they had underrepresented. The saxophone was like deeply underrepresented there. So he listened back through, and he was like, "We should take out one of the guitar solos in Badlands and put a saxophone solo over it." And um, and now he like yeah. talking about it. He's like, "Man, that would have been an absolute tragedy if we, we had never included the saxophone solo on that song." So that that does sort of build it out. And there there really, if you listen to it, there is not that much saxophone. Especially compared, like, the saxophone is on the cover of Born to Run, and on this album, it is very underrepresented in comparison to, to previous records. Yeah. Well, it plays a lot of rhythm guitar on this record, which is, I think it does a really good job. Mm-hmm. It's just not as showy as it normally is. Like, I think it shows a little bit of versatility for Clarence. Like, you know, I don't have to be a show, like, I can be a part of the mix, too. You know what I mean? Like, I can be the biggest person on stage, but I can also be... Uh, a, a piece that you don't notice until it's gone. Yeah. In, in fact, Clarence seems to have been a pretty good sport about the whole thing because in an interview, he, he said, this is the ultimate dad joke. I'm so proud of him for saying this. But what someone asked him about like the underrepresentation, and he said, well, you don't want to have, you never want too much sax because then you become a sax maniac. <laughs> I'm like, I, I tip my hat to you, sir. Well done. <laughs> Oh my god, that's a funny. Oh man, I love Clarence um, so much yeah. for saying that. Yeah, my favorite part of the uh, whole song is is at the beginning, right before it really comes in. The guitar, it, there's like another. Everything's kind of chill, and then one guitar like smashes the metalist guitar pedal, and it's like, boom! <laughs> you know, like yeah, that's just the coolest, coolest part of the whole song. They don't even play like a chord. He just kind of cranks the fret. I do that all the time because of this song. I would notice that when I was playing like a quiet song at church, every between like chord changes, I have to like just pump my hand down the, down the neck of the guitar because I just have to feel like a cool guitar guy who's playing Badlands. That is, that is cool. And, it, and when they do it live, it, it just rips. It's just so cool. Oh, yeah. Amberlin, this band called Amberlin, they have a whole record where it's just the guitars are just that. Yeah. And it's incredible. <laughs> well, in that... It's that, that, like the Cats Fighting were a pop song. <laughs> Well, and that right there, that is that is the influence of Stephen Van Zant in in the in the engineers booth because, and this by the way, this is the first album that Stephen is officially part of the E Street Band, and yeah. they he's not he's not officially credited as one of the producers. John Landau and Bruce are like the official producers mentioned in the in the credits, but Little Stephen is often mentioned as like a also with assistance by because he apparently yeah. had a lot of opinions in the booth. And one of the things, according to Jimmy Iovine, was like he's constantly trying to push the guitars. Like he he always feels like we're not doing enough for the, like he just wants more guitar in the mix. And so like the reference to that, and also in the next track, like it's basically just like him getting his way. In fact, Iovine yeah. was like, man, he would not stop talking about how much we need to put in more guitars. But it's also like so tasteful. He's not asking for it to just be all the guitars turned all the way up. He's asking for like feature little those like little feature moments where it's just in one ear yeah but in uh, comparison to so every cool. other bruce springsteen record up to this point like it's a lot of guitar oh yeah the first few times we talked about songs off of this i specifically in my sort of review of the guitars said it sounds like the riffs that play on a 
a plastic guitar when you pick it up at a Toys R Us. You know, <laughs> just like this quintessential, just like ripping guitar parts. That's this whole record is just full of them. Just riff heavy. It's so fun. And they'll just do little things, uh, little transitional you know, guitar things in this, all the transitions are, are guitars in the song or, or like snare drums, you know, just blasting it out. And it's like little throwaway things that are just so cool that they do. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Like the yeah. Badlands guitar solo, it's sort of just a transition. You know what I mean? It's just like the, it's just like in between two parts. It's not like a really a traditional solo, uh, but it leads into the sax solo. It's such a cool guitar part. It's such a cool transition. Well, and that's a good transition into the net, into track two which is Adam Raised the Cane. song is this song is the most guitar song bruce has ever recorded anytime you're doing like those uh a second note is that what it is that uh 64 64 note 64th note like yeah just like straight strums that's yeah. cool <laughs> that's cool <laughs> yeah this one i mean yeah this this song is straight up just rips on the guitar and this is and i mean i think it I, i've seen him do it live and it is. It is a. It is a guitar showcase. And it's Bruce, by the way, is doing all like the heavy lifting on the guitars. He's playing all the all the major guitar parts here. I love. Uh, this is the most. The most quintess- yeah. This is like. This is where you see. And I talked about this a ton when we did this episode. Almost too much, probably. But like, this is when you look at Bruce and say, "Oh, like we've always known he was a rock and roll guy, you know." Yeah. But he's a guitar guy. He's like. This is when the world saw him for the first time. Like everybody on the shore, you knew him. You know, like this is a guitar guy. Yeah. Well, and that, yeah, like you said, like that was sort of his reputation on the Jersey Shore before he like broke out was like that. This is one of like the best guitar players around besides Stephen Van Zandt, who also is on this record. So like you got two, two of the best guitar players from New Jersey, both represented on this record. Well, they're both guys who are known as band leaders. Yeah. Too. But who who are sneaky, incredible guitar players. And they both are guys who, who voluntarily brought along you know, like one of the greatest guitar players of all time uh, in Nils. And, and we're, to- you know what I mean? We're like, totally fine to like let him do the flashy lifting, um, which is cool. You know, like they they both realize that they, like little Steven realizes that he's, he is the guy who comes into the booth and he's like, what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> what are you, what is you doing? <laughs> And uh, that's that's Stephen Van Zandt. It's like he walks in, he's got a scarf, he throws it over his shoulder. He's like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> we need more guitars. Well, and Bruce's job is to like lead the band, and so they let, even though they can both play, some of the, like the Adam Ray's like the that guitar part is so incredible in this song. Uh, man, they're so good. Yeah, it's really well, and and two. I mean, really, we could have a whole episode and just talk about the relationship between. Bruce and Steven Van Zandt. But one of the things that's interesting watching the documentary is how much B-roll footage they have of just like the two of them messing around in the studio. Like, cause this, this is a, yeah. this is an album that is 
it's very heavy with like angst. It's there's a lot of rage, particularly in this song in Adam Raised a Cane. And so you feel like, man, things must have been really tense, especially considering all the things that got them there. But like when like during the downtime, it's amazingly how much footage there is of Bruce sitting at a piano, like banging out just like weird, like making stuff up as he goes. By the way, one of the things he just makes up on the fly becomes Sherry Darling later. Um, <laughs> and, and it's just and, and Stephen is always like standing there and it's the two of them. And you can tell they're just totally playing. They're just having fun. And there's so much footage of just these two guys being friends and musicians in a room together and it's so cool to see like how much they really genuinely like each other and like they're not just there as professionals which i mean bruce is nothing if not professional but they're also there because they love music and they love making music with each other and so there's there's a certain amount of joy that probably doesn't show up in the sounds of the album, but it def- was definitely present at some point in in the midst of the recording. And probably it's because Steven was in the room with him. A lot of what um, makes the E Street Band in this record, you know, a lot of these early records so uh, powerful is that, uh, I mean, you can tell that Bruce has like a special relationship with every member of his band, but he had such, he was so publicly like in love with Steven and with Clarence. And like, it was so powerful. You know what I mean? It transcended so much. Yeah. Uh, like in the music, and that's I think that's part of what that bond is. Is like they're having a blast, or really working through stuff together, you know, or really hurting together uh, because they love each other. Uh, yeah, and it comes across in the music. It absolutely does. It comes across, and, and again, like it comes across when you watch them live. Like there's, yeah, there's nothing more joyful than a Bruce Springsteen concert, and part of that joy shows up in how the band members interact with one another. And I, th- I think there's there's something really magical about that. Well, I mean, it, I guess it's proven in that they don't um, – they, they play a ton of shows together almost every year, uh, and, they're, and they're, like, super, super old now. <laughs> and uh, they don't, like, break up and sue each other every, every two years. <laughs> That's true. And then have big, like – and then have big, like, going-out-of-business sale tours. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really great to see. And, and, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of rage on this album, and th- this song – has a lot of that rage pent up inside. This is one of Bruce's father songs. And, and like, and really like if, if born to run was an exploration of like, what, what are all the things that people do on summer nights? This album is an exploration of like, what are all the ways that people feel lonely and enraged? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And so like yeah. this song is, is one of those is a manifestation of one of those things. And then moving into the third track, which is something in the night. Well, I'm This song is possibly the bleakest song on this album, which is saying something. So how do you, okay, if if we're looking at it through the lens of isolation and rage and like continuing to look for self-actualization and hope in the midst of those things, where does this song fit in the narrative of that, JB? Probably like before the and self-actualization, you know, like (laughs) this is like sort of the bottom, you know, just even, just like the... You know the mall, like the calling in the background, and say, "Oh, mom!" You know, just like all of that is so longing. You know, yeah, it's it, painful. This is the dark night of the soul song. It's depressed. Yeah, you're born with nothing and better uh, off that way. As soon as you've got something, they send someone to try and take it away. Who does that? Who's he talking about there? Do you think? Yeah, man, this is uh, 
this one's heavy. Yeah, it, it, it does. Oh, and you mentioned depression. Like, one of the things, if, for, for those of us who read Bruce's autobiography, Born to Run, one of the things that he mentions that a lot of people kind of latched onto when that book came out is that he's struggled with depression all of his life. But he didn't always know that. Yeah. to call it that. And the thing is, like, if you and really especially spend a lot in this of, moment, yeah, I mean, it's it's all over the place here. And even though Bruce didn't necessarily know that that's what it was, like, I mean, th- this this is a song that definitely understands the point of view of someone who understands depression. Yeah, for sure. Um, something interesting about the the production of, on this one, though, is that the band recorded this track live in the studio together. And in the, in the final verse where Max drops out, you know, like. Um, apparently, according to Max, that was utterly spontaneous. He says Bruce just threw his arms up in the air like a, like a conductor, and Max just like followed along, oh. and and that's that's what you're listening to. Isn't wow. that incredible? That's the one they kept. Yeah, I, I think that's one reason why maybe it's like it it doesn't drag. You know, it's a slow song, but it doesn't drag. And I think maybe it's got that it's got that live room energy. It does, and it's it's really haunting and pretty i i I like this song so much i I mean obviously like we gave every song on this record a five so i mean there's there's not a dud in here but uh man it this is like this is a dark night of the soul kind of song the next song is like the shortest song well there's actually a shorter song on the record but like this is one of the shortest songs bruce has released up to this point if not the shortest to this point you know two two minutes 46 seconds but it's such such a good song oh we're talking about candy's room by the way in candy's room there are pictures of our heroes on the wall. To get to Candy's room, had a walk. Darkness at Candy's hall. Strangers from the city call my baby's number and they bring her toys. When I come knocking, she smiles pretty. She knows I want to be Candy's boy. There's a sadness hidden in that pretty face. A sadness all her own, from which. No man can keep candy safe. We kiss. Yeah, candy room. Sorry. Think about today. Gary's bass, like the bass line that comes in, you know, you know, half a minute into the first verse. You, that's the first time you can like hear to me like that uh, a guitar string has actually sounded like tension. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the sound of guitars is created through tension, but it sounds free. You know, it's almost like that tension being free. That's what, that's what that uh, the plucking of the string sounds like to me. But Gary's tone is like sounds like tension in the song. And it's like, uh, I just love it so much. This song explodes. And it's great because something in the night's a slow song, and then this song just like brings you back up. Yeah, it, the 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 dynamic flow of this album is really interesting. And so, like, you start with Badlands, which is high energy, it's big, and then it goes to Adam Rage Decane. And Bruce very famously describes Adam Rage Decane as it's basically like each song is a scene in a movie. In the first mo- the first the first scene is like a couple having a picnic, and then the the second scene is a dead body. And so, like, and then and so yeah. like, like the dynamics of this album are very like strong. And so it goes out of Adam Raised the Cane down, way, way down into something in the night. And like you said, it sort of lifts back up into Candy's room, which is, like you said, a lot more fast. And it's, it's, it, it's, very, um, it's very propulsive in, in what it's doing. Even like the, yeah. the, the clickety-click of the hi-hat at the beginning, like every, everything feels like, like somebody's like tapping their foot as, as quickly as they can because they're just in a hurry. It's urgent. It is ur- urgent. Is, is very, yeah, which is super urgent. Yeah. Well, and thematically also, it's, it's an interesting addition here because we mentioned before, like – the whole thing is about like disconnection and disengagement 
and this one it sounds like it's about a guy who's in love with a girl, but it's it's about someone who yeah. is in love with someone who cannot love them back for whatever reason. So e- even his song about love is about unrequited love and like doomed romance. And it almost seems like the narrator of the story, the guitar and or the drums are the narrator of the story, and it's almost like they're like, quick, quick, we must not tarry. You know, we must hurry. There's too much to cover. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's like a weird. It's like a weird ride at a fair. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or in a park. It's like when you go into one of those rides and you think, oh, this isn't – it's a small world after all. After all, this is, this is something different. Yeah. This is unnerving. <laughs> it is. It, and it's so – like you said, it's so fast and it's so propulsive. And it, it's um, – I, I love this song. I um, This is one of my – Candy's is one of my favorite songs. Like per, like not on this record, but like period. Yeah, I remember when we first talked about it. Like you you were way higher on it than me. And I've it's grown in my estimation. But it is uh, – and part of that – part of the reason is because I saw him do it live. And – um, it's, uh, it, it, there's just, there's really nothing like it. And, and it, this is exactly where it needs to be on this record because it's between something in the night and track five, which is racing in the street. I got a 69 Chevy with a 396 Fuley heads and a hearse on the floor. She's waiting tonight down in the parking lot. Outside the 7-Eleven store Me and my partner Sonny Built her straight out of scratch And he rides with me And ra- Racing in the Street goes way like back down into like tonally and Way back down And we talked before I think Racing in the Street is probably where you got the deepest into music theory and we had a lot of listeners who said they really enjoyed hearing you talk about that so can you talk a little I mean we don't oh, need to get cool. all the way back into it but like can you kind of talk more about like sort of how the structure of this song contributes to sort of the overall like body of what this album is doing like the uh, one four two four is that what you're talking about like how the chorus is like this kind of super interesting one four two four so coming back down to that two is just like an interesting thing instead of like doing a three or five um so the the one is like the the f is it's in the key of f and then like the four is like four in the f scale and then you come back down to the second down the f scale which is a um g and then uh back up to the fourth and so that's just like an interesting um and like sad sort of walk and yeah and so like the the concept of the song it's connected to the overall theme of of the of the album but it's about this guy who kind of gets in a situation with another guy and a girl and um you know it's about racing and and, and the whole thing you know it, like th- there's a restlessness to the story and like how it ends with like sort of out of my way mister you best keep because summer's here and the time is right for racing in the street so he, he has this whole thing and he connects with this girl and ultimately that's doomed because it says he says i met her on the strip three years ago in a camaro with this dude from la i blew that camaro off my back and drove this little girl away but now there's a wrinkle around my baby's eyes and she cries herself to sleep at night when i come home the house is dark. She sighs. Baby, did you make it all right? She sits on the porch on her, of her daddy's house, but all her pretty dreams are torn. She stares off alone into the night with the eyes of one who hates for who hates for just being born. For all the shut-down strangers and hot rod angels rumbling through this promised land, tonight my baby and me, we're going to ride to the sea and wash these sins off our hands. Tonight, tonight, the highway's bright. And so it's the notion of, like, no matter what he's chasing, there's always something else. And, and he caught the girl, and now that's not enough. 
so you you sort of I remember you sort of talked about how like the structure of the song sort of like echoes. Yeah, I remember it now. So he's talking about like he's talking about the, the song. The character's always like longing for something like the next step that he keeps thinking is supposed to be there. And so and going back to the two instead of like going on to the five, like what I was talking about a second ago. So you go one four. And then setting on like to the five, or you come back to the two, and then so you're thinking, oh, now surely we're going to go to the five. We should go back to the four. So you never like sort of get to that five. You know that you never get to in your head. You hear that, and you think about the chord, and you don't get that. You don't get that. Um, that fifth. You don't get the chord. Uh, whenever you whenever you just stay at the four. So he's withholding. And so this guy's longing for the next step, and that's what the music. You're only two song, two times in the song does he ever actually go ahead and play that C. So like, for for the whole song, you're you're like also longing because you're just like waiting to take the next step, which would be the fifth. That is fascinating. That he he structures yeah. the song as if even without the lyrics, the music is doing the work of the lyrics it's telling it's the music is also telling the story of the song which is the longing for the thing you you will never realize you know that all of life is a mirage i'm about to go grab one of my guitars because i was like wait is that the fifth it is yeah (laughs) that's awesome Uh, so so, i'm I'm so glad you brought that into the conversation yeah sorry it took me a second to to remember to remember what i was talking about it's been a long time i I didn't mean to catch you off guard i I don't know why i just expected you to just have that in your brain just like ready to go (laughs) For some reason, I should. You know, it's a thing that I like talked about at length once. Well, yeah, <laughs> like uh, two years ago, like that. It's it's been a little while since we talked about racing in the streets. So, any like that that to me, th- this song almost more than any other song on this record is the gift that keeps on giving for for exactly the reason you're describing. Is that there are layers upon layers upon layers of what make this song so interesting and so profound that at, at face value, it's just it's just a song about a guy who likes to race. And then, like the more time you spend with it, the more you realize, like, oh my gosh, like you can, like the entire concept of the record is is encapsulated in this song. And he's like yeah. the the amount of like thoughtful intentionality that he puts into even how he structures the song. That even like a musician listening to just the music is gonna be like, wait, he did a thing there, and that's interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, my uh, professor author I, I really love was this week was talking about Philip Roth story where uh, where a professor she has opinions but she is feels pressured politically to like not speak up so she just you know he says uh quotes the structures her her lessons by quoting the approved writers and speakers it, it, she's like caged in and at the end she finally like is set free and he was like what else is caged and wants to be free birds and then he, the number of times that they used words like fra- Philip Roth uses like phrases and words like uh, she was just parroting other people. Yeah, she said, I'm not prepared. And her friend said, it's OK, just wing it like the whole story, like every other line. You don't notice it until the end. You're like, oh, man, he was talking about birds. Though. He was using bird words the entire story. That's fascinating. It's about this woman who was caged. And then, yeah. And like that is artistry. You know, that is the thing I've been thinking about for like a couple of weeks. I have to turn a story into this class. And it's like, wow, how can I <laughs> how can I write a thing and then go back and make sure that all the other little pieces point back to it? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, subliminally. And that's why I'm not a great artist. <laughs> That's why I'm not one of the greats, you know. That's why Bruce Springsteen is one of the greats, is like because he can write a song about longing, and he can make the lyrics about longing too. But the song's about longing before you realize it, and you know that because you feel it before you have thought about it. Hey, man, I think you're one of the greats. <laughs> uh, I think I'm one of the greats at pointing out greats. 
if that if you can be a great in that, then I am a great. I am one of the greats at at uh, pointing out greats. I mean, if that if if that's not possible, what are we doing here? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's flip the vinyl. Um, lest we end up spending three hours talking about this record, which I'm totally prepared to do, but we don't Dang, need to. dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, all right. So side two of the album begins with my personal favorite song on the record, which is The Promised Land. third single released off of the album and it did not chart this this song as far as like as far as singles performed this song did no business at all which again is amazing because this the album did very well but the the singles just were not um were not performing at the level that the album was so uh in the promised land the promised land was the least successful of the three singles that were released now that said i love this song so much this is my third favorite bruce springsteen song of all time again this this album in a lot of ways i remember talking about this with you because I was saying, I remember talking about this with you because you just kept talking the whole time. You were like, it's about how we know that like, we're like, there's something better. That's what this, this song's about. Yeah. And we would go on and you'd be like, it's about knowing in your soul that we're made for something better than this. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're like, I love this song. It's about hope. <laughs> not to be, not to be the John Foreman of podcasting, but yeah, we were meant to live for so much more. <laughs> I love John Foreman. I know you do. He's such a goofball. <laughs> so anyway, like, oh man, yeah. Again, like connecting it with the the overall theme of the album. The album is about Bruce, like again, like the the juxtaposition between hope and despair and disconnection. But also, one of the things that's interesting about this album is that it expands the scope of Bruce's storytelling because up until this point. All of the narrative settings that you've seen in a Bruce Springsteen album have been somewhere in like an urban northeastern sort of setting, Jersey, New York, like that sort of range. But here it opens with on a rattlesnake speedway in, a, in the Utah desert. So all of a sudden we are yeah. nowhere near the Jersey Shore. Like we're, we're way out of the northeast. We're, we're in the Utah desert. We're, we're in fact right on the edge of the Waynesboro County line. Yeah, we are. And th- this is also a lot more folky than Bruce's I- anything Bruce has ever recorded. So this is in in a lot yeah. of ways this, this is sort of harmonica. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and a chorus. Like one of the things we talked about before is like you don't see a lot of choruses, but here you've got a you've got a genuine chorus. There's n- literally nothing I can say about this album or the song that w- I didn't say already, uh, which apparently I said many well, many times. Yeah. This song is about hope before like just like uh, we just talked about with racing in the street is a, is about longing before you even hear the lyrics because you feel it. The song is about hope before you even hear the lyrics, because because of the chord progressions and because of the harmonica, you know. Yeah, well, and that this song exists on the same album as something in the night is fascinating because those two songs are vi- like on totally different points on, of the continuum between hope and despair. Then we got factory. I'm 
There are lots of people who will make the argument that this song is the weakest song on the record. I disagree. I think this song is awesome. I love it. Uh, it's very simple compared to the rest of the album, and I think that is deceptive and makes people think that it's weaker, but it's not. It, it deals with the paradox of earning a living li- earning a living in a place that directly extracts life from you. Like, you have to earn a living, but in the process of earning a living, it's destroying you. And that's what the song's about. And in a lot of ways, it's about his dad. It reminds me of the Isbel song, I Thank God for the Work. Yeah. There's sort of like two different lenses to look through the same situation with. It's funny. I just saw Jason Isbel play a couple of nights ago, and he he did that song. Oh, was it so good? Of course it was. I love when he plays that song live. It's really great. He, had, he doesn't always do it, uh, but man, I love it when he does. Yeah. It. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it is sort of, it, it's, it's the other end of the spectrum, which is like, I mean, if the guy didn't have work, that would be worse. But at the same time, like the work is, is kind of destroying him. It's crushing his soul. And also like, it's, it's interesting. Like Bruce has gone through his own sort of crucible as a songwriter and as, as a musician, but his greatest fear is that he's going to have to go back and live the life that his father lived as a, a as a blue collar factory worker. And, um, and th- this song is sort of articulating, like, this is what my life probably would look like if it were that. Uh, and then we got streets of fire. When you don't care anymore Streets of Fire. Come on now. Uh, Jimmy Iovine <laughs> says watching Bruce sing the song live in the studio was one of the most incredible things he's ever seen in his whole life. That's a great, like, that's just a great thing uh, to be able to say about, you know, like, oh, I saw him sing Streets of Fire and it was one of the greatest things I've seen in my life. I was the first person to ever that's watch cool. him sing the song. Yeah, like, yeah, Jimmy Jimmy Iovine, man, that guy, that guy has lived a rock and roll life without ever actually picking up an instrument. Yeah, it's almost like he never set out to even music. <laughs> I mean, I mean, truly, like one, one of the like music moguls. Like if, if anybody needs to just write a book about all the things that he's seen, it's Jimmy Iovine, including and, watching Bruce sing this. And he the got into music by being like, fine, I'll, I'll be here this weekend. <laughs> yeah. By yeah, just be, sure, whatever, being a guy who <laughs> just was willing to like sit in a booth for six, six months. Yeah. And it's funny. He like never seemed excited about it. He was like, yeah, I was there. <laughs> we made that record. It was great. It was terrible though. <laughs> yeah. It was a nightmare and it changed my life. I love Jimmy Iovine. He's an interesting guy, man. I, I like watching him interviewed in, in documentaries. He, he's very interesting to watch. I can't imagine watching him say, I hear somebody call my name a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like when he hit, goes up and starts just belting, I hear somebody call my name. Can you imagine just being on the other side of the glass? You know, like, no, it's like, I feel like it would be like standing in a wind tunnel. <laughs> yeah, it'd be cra- you know, like, crazy. Hair's flying back. cheeks are flopping in the wind like a dog. <laughs> Yeah, it it does sort of evoke that kind of imagery. Like, um, like, like people just walk out like with their hair blown back and their eyes wide open. Like, what just happened? Um, 
but yeah. thematically this song this song fully fits into the theme uh like the the whole section about where i'm wondering a loser down these tracks i'm dying but girl i can't go back because in the darkness i hear somebody call my name when you realize how they tricked you this time because at first it's like oh it's another song about like car racing but it's not it's it's about it's about finding himself and about like not not being able to like find anything worth getting excited about in the world which you know again juxtaposition between hope and despair that's where that's where the, this this whole album lives yeah man and his blues guitar in this song is sick and his guitar tone is juke joint hot feels like he's just didn't want to want to play that guitar solo, you know, but he was gonna, you know, well, if I have to do it, I'm going to do it right. And this is another one where he does like a lot of moaning, like you were talking about before with uh, something in the night. Yeah, dude, it's a, I mean, again, we g- we gave every song on this record five stars. There's there's nothing disposable at all five about stars. this album, which I mean, yeah, he had 70 songs to choose from. He picked these and every song matters, including the next song, which is Prove It All Night. Now this was the, this was the most successful single from the album. It peaked at number thirty-three. What great like chord hits! Just the beginning, just the, just the cymbals and the piano chords and the guitars and the piano all hit the chords and. It is an iconic yeah. five seconds of music that shows up at the like the song. It takes no time at all to recognize this song. I have a hard time hearing the song and not now thinking about uh, the movie Blinded by the Light, where Javed is talking lyrically to this. This this is one of the more awkward I thought musical moments in in that movie where he like he's supposed to go home and he like goes over to his girlfriend and he says, "Now baby, tie your hair back in a long white bow." And I'm like, mm, "Stop it! I don't like it. I don't like it when you talk the lyrics." Dude, to that people. was perfect. Thank you. <laughs> that was perfect. That was such a good accent. I appreciate that. Oh my gosh. I, I, I had a lot of fun watching that movie, but really a lot of the music cues were I thought super awkward and I didn't want to watch. It was like it was like watching somebody that you like embarrass themselves. That's what it felt like when when he did that part. So Yeah. Yeah. I used to have a friend who would get real pumped about a song and then like mouth it silently at you and it was always just like Don't do that. Stop it. <laughs> You're ruining our friendship and Yeah, that song. I would leave. Yeah. His name's Bryant. <laughs> and I was like Bryant. I, I talked to him like I talked to him yesterday, but I would just be like, Brian, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I love the like the idea. You just get up and walk out, like slam the door behind you. Stop. It. I did all the time, <laughs> all the time. And uh, that's all that movie was. Somehow it was still really sweet. And this was I thought this was a sweet scene once I got over him mouthing lyrics at her. It was fine. Except, yeah, just, like when, when the songs were in the background, it was another it was one thing. It was when people they would like lock eyes with somebody. Um, most famously to me, like the worst, the worst, uh, version of that was when they like went over to the white supremacists and were like, y'all did uh, white supremacists to the ones who had a notion, a notion deep inside. Stop <laughs> it. You're about to be the victim of a hate crime. You need to stop it. Protect yourself and go. Uh, yes. My dad and I were so uncomfortable. But... It was very uncomfortable. Th- those scenes were, were the hardest parts of that movie. But anyway, do you, any any um, lingering thoughts about Prove It All Night that we need to to get into? No, nah, man. Sick guitar. And then, darkness on the edge. Yeah. Will it still racing down the trestles? 
has some of that doo-wop sensibility that he left off most of the record that you know that's sort of the other record he was writing but yeah um it's so nice this the piano with the hats this is one i've never seen live that i really would love to i i I really hope i get a chance to to hear him perform this one this this is a this is such a good song I, i i love how it builds musically i love that it's the closer like this is a really great way because the entire album is leading up to this in the title of like the title of the whole album is this, and yet he he holds it back until the very last track. The overall theme of the record, again, if we're, if we're looking at the whole album as a whole, which I think Bruce wants us to do, is like sort of trying to find yourself in the midst of disconnection and despair, and and to to maintain some sense of not just hope but of selfhood, of self differentiation. Like you are you are not the sum total of the the best or the worst things about you. You are a human being, and so there's a lot of like I mean that's the whole thing about the Promised Land, right? Like I'm I'm. Mr. I'm not a boy, I'm a man. It's 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 the insistence upon my own yeah. personal humanity. And so this song is, and this is Bruce's own words. He says, it's about reckoning with the adult world. It's about resilience and a commitment to life, to the breath that is in your lungs. And he goes on to talk about how it's about not forsaking your own driving life force. How do you honor the things that have shaped you even when you're challenged and when you're struggling? Like that, that the, how he like, almost like shouts where he says i'll be on that hill with everything i've got because i can't stop because like all the all the other people that he grew up with have compromised and have like sold off parts of themselves and he's like and and it's it the analogy here is like being a street racer out on the edge of town but it's not really about that i mean that's that's the metaphor but what it's about is who am i when everybody else around me has decided to compromise everybody else has started selling off pieces of themselves and i still believe in something so much that i'm willing to be the one, the last person standing out on that hill with everything that i've got you know and like yeah. this whole album is him insisting that he is that guy like like in the midst of the lawsuit he's saying i'll be on that hill cuz i can't stop you know like it gives me chills and that he holds this song back and does the whole album and is like here's the thing i've been wanting to say and he punctuates the whole thing with this song as the exclamation mark on the end of the record. It is so powerful and so profound and exactly what it needs to be. Again, in, in the documentary, he talks about how adult life requires a lot of compromise. And the album is about the tension between what you can and cannot compromise without losing yourself. Because Born to Run and really the preceding two albums are about youth. They're about joy. They're about the excitement of what's the next thing that we don't know how to anticipate and how can we break free. And this album is the thing that happens when you realize like, but when you're an adult, you can't just break free. You can't just like get married. Like you can't just tell Mary to get in the car and pull out of here to win every time you feel frustrated. That's not how adult life works. And so this album is about how do you live your adult life while still maintaining that sort of like spirit that got you in the car and, and, and compelled you to invite Mary to go with you. How can you be both those people yeah. in one body? And this song is like, here's how, because sometimes you got to be on that hill cause you can't stop, you know? Yeah. Unbelievable. Mic drop. Bruce is the greatest. No one ever needs to make another album again because this album said it all. That's right. <laughs> Though I'm glad we do have other records. This is uh this is, this is, uh, we we could do worse to have only only have one of this be it. <laughs> I mean, if 
God forbid. Thank God this didn't happen. But if if Bruce had died in a plane crash, Buddy Holly, like you know, like in in the way that so many greats, you did, shut your mouth. I know. After this album, like if they'd been on t- on this tour and they had like if the bus or the plane had crashed and no more Bruce Springsteen, no more E Street Band, we would be sitting here looking at this album, being like, what else would this guy have been able to do? Because look at this, look at this. You know what I mean? It anyway. It it is a it is a it is a work. Of you said that like. Uh... You set that up like a Bill Burr joke. <laughs> you well, were like, I'm going to take you somewhere terrible. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to take you somewhere terrible. I know. I know. It's terrible, but we have to go there. <laughs> I'm going to make you envision the worst reality that we could have possibly lived. A, a, a reality in which Bruce Springsteen never got to make another album after this one. So anyway, it's 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 a perfect record. I love it so much. I am so glad we got a chance to talk about it. I could talk, we, we, I could do another two hours, obviously. Um we can't because we got to go. But uh, final thoughts. Yeah. No, yeah, we're already like way over time on this one. We are way over time. Great record. I'm, uh, I, I don't. I don't know. It's my. I, you know, I think I do actually. I was gonna say I don't know if I like this better than Border Run or not. Like it's. I think it's a better record. But there's like the question of like, is it? You know, uh, rank it. Which one's your favorite? And then rank it. Which one do you think is like musically a better record? And I think I do actually like this one better than Born to Run. So if we're ranking the four that we've looked at, you you put is this number one for you? Yeah, one uh, Darkness, two Born to Run, three Greetings, four While the Innocent. All right, I am I'm Born to Run by a hair, and the only reason for that is Born to Run has Thunder Road on it. You know, like if if yeah, you're like, I, yeah. and I because, think everybody here knew that you were before you said that. Yeah, well, and I mean that's the thing. If if you're like gun to your head, Desert Island pick, you can only keep one of these albums for the rest of your life. Like it would destroy me to lose Darkness on the Edge of Town, but I could not live with myself if I never got to hear Thunder Road again. You know. You know, I think if in that situation I would blurt out Born to Run probably. So maybe yeah. maybe Born to Run is my favorite. I'm gonna swap them. I mean that's I mean it's a tough call. It's a, it's a game of inches at this point. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. For, so, so for me, it's Born to Run, then Darkness, then Wild the Innocent, and then Greetings. That's that's the ranking order I'm I'm at with it so far. But it, I mean, again, cool. it's, it is We're a game close. of inches, very close. All right. Well, thanks everybody so much for listening. Final thoughts? Any anything anything left unsaid, JB? No. And if you want to hear us talk about the top seven uh, '70s records of all time. Uh, or of all 70s. <laughs> of all we are going to be doing that over on the Patreon feed. So patreon.com slash Springsteen. Sign up uh, and get those bonus episodes and donate to No Kid Hungry. No and, Kid Hungry! Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, cool. So anyway, <laughs> we'll just make air horn noises uh, for the Why next not? 15 minutes. You guys uh, just hang in there and <laughs> we'll get through this together. Yes, we no, have a great uh, week and, and, and we'll see you. Oh, wait soon. Yeah, we 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 decided one of the things that we decided to do because we're the, the, the amount of content we're putting out is more than it was in season one, uh, just by volume. Right. So one of the things that we're, we're going to do between decades is we're going to take a week off. So there will be no new episode in the main feed next week. But then the following week, we'll get into the 80s and we're going to start talking about The River. And we're going to break The River into two albums or into two episodes. Obviously, we're, we're going to need the time uh, because it's a double album. So uh, so we, we will next week we will be off. And then the week after that, we'll be back in the feed with disc one of The River. But until then, you know, we'll be on that hill because we cannot stop. We'll see you all in the patron feed if you're if you're up for that. And then if not, we'll see you in a couple weeks when we talk about The River. Yeah.